K-Pop is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to K-Pop. A black man who had just taken his sister to her prom was choked by police at a Waffle House in North Carolina after an altercation that reportedly started because they sat at a table before it was clean. That was the fourth incident at a Waffle House over a 12-day period to get national attention. Two black men were arrested at a Starbucks in Philadelphia after a manager called the police because the two hadn't bought anything as they waited to start a business meeting. Today, the coffee retailer is closing all of its stores nationwide to conduct a company-wide training on racial bias. We're taking this opportunity to present to you a special episode on race. These past interviews will explore the history of African Americans in this country and how that informs what Starbucks employees will be hearing today. We all should be there. We all should understand the genesis of the problem. To understand it, we got to start at the beginning, slavery. In her book, The Price for Their Pound of Flesh, Professor Dinah Rami Berry shows how the devaluation of black life started in bondage. Slavery is still very much a part of American culture, American history. Well, that gets to the next question mm-hmm. I was just about to ask you, and that is, what do you say to white people mm-hmm. who say, slavery has nothing to do with me, or none of my ancestors owned slaves, or this one really always gets me. Slavery was abolished in in 1865. Why can't black people move on? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I get that all the time, too. <laughs> so one of the things I say, and I say this publicly, um, anyone that's heard me speaks, and my students, I get probably tired of it. Black people in this country were enslaved longer than we have been free. And when you think about that reality, if slavery ended in 1865, it's now 2017, black people were enslaved for almost 244 years. We haven't reached the 244-year mark of freedom. When I also look at the fact that there are institutions today, universities, municipalities, insurance companies, city governments, who benefited from slavery, literally and figuratively, there's connections to slavery that's today. There are bodies that have been unburied. There are insurance companies around today that had policies for enslaved people that we have records from. And so it's not that it was something that was that long ago. I think our nation as a whole, and I've said this many times, hasn't dealt with slavery. And there's a story about this one female slave. I think this is her sole value. She escaped and made it to Canada. And when she was interviewed from Canada, she didn't want to give her name. She just said, put me down as Mrs. MRS, period. So she wanted people to know that she was married but didn't give her last name. And she said, for those who want to apologize for slavery... Let them go experience it for a while. Wow. I mean, let the enslaved speak. Let them tell us. Look what she's telling us. Mm-hmm. I don't want an apology. We have yet to, the history books have not incorporated the kinds of stories, the textbooks. There are historical scholars or historians that are doing this work, but we're sometimes talking to one another. I wanted to write a book that was for a larger, wider, accessible audience, and that's why I wrote this book. But racism didn't end with the abolition of slavery. Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, talked about how it merely transformed itself as African Americans fled the South. 90% of the African American population at the beginning of the 20th century lived in the Deep South, 
what they knew was agriculture, what they knew uh, were the skills and trades that are associated with an agrarian economy. Uh, so this region offered them the best opportunity to develop and take the skills they had developed during enslavement and turn them into to jobs and to ways to support their families. They were holding on to that. And then the terror started, then the threats started, then they were disenfranchised, then they were marginalized, and then they were menaced. And it was only after being threatened and menaced and terrorized that black people fled. And they went to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland, not as immigrants seeking new economic opportunities, but they went there as refugees and exiles from terror. And in the, in the international context, we realize now that when we're dealing with a refugee population, as, a, as opposed to just an immigrant population, there are special needs that have to be addressed. But we didn't do that in the urban North and West. We actually uh, segregated people into ghettos and we denied them opportunities that other people got. Uh, and this uh, movement from the South to the North didn't actually create freedom, it just created a little bit more security. And the tragedy of that uh, migration, that exodus, if you will, is that families were separated. Uh, the opportunity to create wealth was lost. Uh, the skills that had been developed for generations were no longer relevant, useful in the urban North and West. And we devastated the ability of African-Americans in this country to do what other immigrant populations had done, which is to work hard and acquire wealth. Black people worked hard and they were lynched for it. They worked hard and they were forced to leave for it. They worked hard and they were disenfranchised and humiliated for it. And that story hasn't been told and the consequence of that bigotry hasn't been acknowledged. Uh, and in fact, what we do is say, oh, the black people, they don't work that hard. They're not this, they're not that. We continue to develop these narratives about some deficit in the African-American community. When, when you think about it, when you really think about it, how enslaved black people got their emancipation and chose to work with those who had enslaved them, chose to find a way to do business, chose to find a way to forgive their enslavers, to live in peace and harmony. And despite that heroic choice, were mistreated for it were disenfranchised for it, and then they were terrorized for it. And even in the midst of terror and lynching, black people weren't calling for vengeance. They weren't calling for violence and, and revenge. They were just calling for peace and security. And during this period of civil rights, you know, we're here in Montgomery, Alabama, I think about it more and more, the cur incredible courage, because when you understand the legacy of lynching and the violence that people face, you have to think differently about what Claudette Colvin did on the Montgomery bus, what Rosa Parks did on the Montgomery bus. By resisting segregation, they were risking their lives. They were saying, I'm prepared to die for freedom. And we haven't acknowledged that. And while they fought for freedom, freedom that should have been given to them at the very moment they entered this country, they were saying, but we're not gonna do anything violent. We still love you. We still care about this country. And uh, it, it saddens me that um, African-Americans, when they express their pain, when they protest about police violence, when they question inequality, when they raise issues of bondage and discrimination, African-Americans are seen as not patriotic. 
I can't identify a race of people in this country who are more committed to the health of this country, who believe more in the Constitution, who believe more in equality and liberation and fairness to everyone else than black people. Because despite the brutality, despite the hate, despite the violence, we keep saying, let's find a way to move forward. And it's a remarkable story uh, of a, a community of people who desperately just want peace. One of those people who desperately wanted peace was John Lewis. He's now a congressman from Georgia, but in 1965, he was a young civil rights leader whose march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge with 600 others, and what happened to them shocked the nation. We studied the teaching of Gandhi, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Thoreau, and around that time, a little comic book came out. It was called Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery Story. Dr. King helped edit this little book. It was 16 pages. It sold for 10 cents. It became like our guide. And we became imbued with the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. And then we had what we call tested ends where a group of black and white students will go to a little restaurant or go to a little place where they had a lunch counter and just sit to establish the fact that these places will refuse to serve an interracial group. And then we start sitting in on a regular basis after this sit-in started in Greensboro, North Carolina. We'd be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion waiting to be served, and someone would come up and spit on us or put a lighted cigarette out in our hair or down our backs, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on us, pull us off the stool and start beating us, stomping us. And we would try to look straight ahead without saying a word. And then we were told over and over again, if we continue to sit in, we'd be arrested and we were taken to jail. And I will never, never forget it as long as I live. One day, when a group of us went down to sit in, student from Fish University, Tennessee State, Mahara Medical College, American Baptist Seminary, Vanderbilt, Peabody, Mahara Medical School, we'd be sitting there. Then we were ordered to get up and we would just stay sitting. Then we were placed under arrest. But before being arrested, if I were going to get arrested, I wanted to look good. I wanted to look clean. I wanted to look fresh. I wanted to look sharp. So I went downtown Nashville and bought a new suit. It was a used suit. And I paid $5 for this suit. And the day I got arrested, I did look clean and fresh and sharp. And I felt so free. I felt so liberated. And I have not looked back since. You felt so free and so liberated being arrested. Why? Yes. Why? Because people have said, we're going to arrest you. We're going to take you to jail. And somehow, in some way, we broke that change. That it's okay to get arrested 
and go to jail for something that is right and fair and just. And that's what you call good trouble. I call it good trouble. I call it necessary trouble. Mm -hmm. And every so often, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have to say, no, no. You know, another time when you you looked clean and good and fresh was when um, the kickoff to of the Selma to Montgomery marches. There's this iconic photograph of you in a light trench coat backpack. Um, the way you tell the story is you knew you were going to get arrested. And so you packed that backpack with a, a, an orange, uh, some books, toothbrush, toothpaste. And I had also, also an apple. Right. And, and, and an apple. Because you just knew. Well, I thought we would we'll be arrested and we would be going to jail. So I wanted to have something to read. I wanted to have something to eat. Since I was going to be in jail with my friends and colleagues and neighbors, I wanted to be able to brush my teeth. Uh, all these many years later, I don't know what happened to the backpack, <laughs> to the apple, the orange, or the toothpaste, or the toothbrush. But we, we had to march that day. We had to walk across that bridge. It's the Edmund Pettus Bridge, crossing the Alabama River. We were on our way from Selma to Montgomery to dramatize to the nation and to the world that the black people in the black belt of Alabama wanted to register to vote, to participate in the democratic process. People had to pass a so-called literacy test. People were told they could not read or write well enough. People were asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap, the number of jelly beans in a jar. There were African-American lawyers and doctors, college professors, teachers who flunked the so-called literacy test. We had to do it. And so you marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and then what happened? We got on the other side of the bridge. There was a group of state troopers standing and the major said, the Alabama State Police, this is an unlawful march. It will not be allowed to continue. I give you three minutes to disperse and return to your homes or to your church. And one of the guys walking with me, leading the march, by the name of Jose William, said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. And the major said again, trooper, advance. I said, Major, may I have a word? He said, that would be no word. Troopers advance. You saw these guys putting on a gas mask. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, tramping us with horses. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. My legs went from under me. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to die. And to this day, I don't know how I made it back across that bridge through the streets of Selma, back to the little church where we had left from. But I do remember being back at the church. They asked me to say something. And I stood up and said, I don't understand it. That President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam. And can I send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people who only desires to register to vote? I was hospitalized with 16 other people, and a group of nuns took care of us. 
You know, when when you tell that story and when you read about the history and the violence that you suffered and that African-Americans endured during that time. And when I hear you tell, when I hear you tell these stories, I just can't, you've seen death, you've seen horror, you've been a victim of violence. Where does it come from? The strength that you have to endure that, get past it, and still be someone who I give to the listener, if you've ever been in the presence of John Lewis or you have seen him on television, you know that there is not one shred of bitterness that comes through either on the television screen or sitting here in front of me right now. How is that possible? Well, you have the training, but it's more than training. Uh, you would leave some high in some way that you have to respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. Dr. King taught us never to hate, for hate is too heavy a burden to bear. He taught us the way of love, the way of peace. And he said, in effect, that we must have the strength to go on, accept the suffering, and, and never give up, never give in, and try to keep it going and create a community at peace with itself. K-Pop is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Bring the spa to you and try Zeal today. Right now, go to zeal.com and enter promo code KPUP to get $20 off your first in-home massage. That's promo code KPUP. Dewan Patterson, a community activist from Baltimore, delivered one of the most moving statements about what it's like being a black man in America today. Given where I live, I didn't have that talk. I wasn't taught to police myself in such a manner because as I grew older, I learned that it was learned behavior that the police will treat us like this. By the time I was 13, I had my first summer job. I knew that the police would come around and um, they called it shakedown. They would take your money. And for me, I, I knew that I always had to have a pay stub in my back pocket. So when they came around and got everybody else, I could say, no, this is my money and I have my pay stub. So I always begin to rationalize myself mm. to prepare myself for that. But when we talk about that talk, I now have to talk more than I would have when I was younger. So now I'm having to talk with other people who want to try to police me and my being. When I speak on that incident, it's like, well, you were shot. The police could see this. Maybe you should have did X, Y, and Z. They try to tell me all the the ways that I should behave. And it enrages me because I'm saying, like, I have a bullet in my head, bloodstained clothes, gushing. But you're telling me that I am still a threat to you. You're still trying to police me and my being. So why should I have to always make you feel more comfortable with just me existing? 
So, no, I, I, I cannot submit to, hey, let me go ahead and make sure everybody else is comfortable. And I'm uncomfortable in my own skin every single day. I'm also a writer, and I actually wrote a piece about this, how being a young black man or black man, period, we're constantly under attack from every angle, from the workplace to school, back at home, to even in some of our personal relationships where we want to lean on someone, and then they're always telling us to man up and suppress these emotions. We're always constantly being policed for our emotions. And I, I, I can't, I, I refuse to do that because... That little, that that being inside me can't live. So it's like, how do how am I feeling right now? If hey, I'm telling the next young man, and I was like, this is what you have to do to survive. Not be yourself. Make everybody around you comfortable. What's the purpose of living if I'm dying just to stay alive every day? Black women are not exempt from discrimination and violence based on race. In Invisible No More, author Andrea Ritchie devotes an entire book on the negative perceptions of black women and the tragic consequences that come with them. But I do think that it requires us to really radically uh, re-examine the function of policing and the ways in which our society perceives black people. Um, and to do the, both of those things requires us to really kind of shake the foundations of what um, most people sort of take for granted. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what... Um, makes this conversation challenging for folks to have beyond one case, one outrage, one protest. You know, in Breon King's case, on the way to the jail, she said to the police officer, why do, why do you treat us this way? How could you do this to me? I did nothing wrong and I just didn't deserve this. And he said, look, you know, black people have violent tendencies. That's what the police officer said. That's a perception of black people that is so deeply entrenched in the fabric, in the blood, in the nervous system of America that to, to, to really confront it, beyond sort of looking for reforms like body cameras or excessive force policies or something else, really just, I think people, you know, it's it's one that people, it's a, it's a challenge people don't want to face. Well, right, because that means, and I would love it if you just break down the history behind behind that statement. He said something seemingly so simply and so glibly, and yet that simple phrase is at least what 600 yeah 600 or something years old in terms of the perception of black people in this country and the perception of black people that led to the colonization of the african continent that led to the middle passage that led to enslavement of african peoples that led to formations of slave patrols the first police departments in this country that were about quelling rebellion of enslaved people right so the notion that black people are dangerous is deeply entrenched in this nation and I think the piece that people don't pay as much attention to is the is the perception of black women as dangerous and threatening and menacing is as deeply entrenched in this country. How so? Well, I think one, you know, black women lived in homes with the people who claimed to enslave them. And people both sort of there was sort of a mammy stereotype and then there was right. the woman who was the threat who could poison your food right mm-hmm. or who could um you know lead the uprising from inside the home and i think that and then the perceptions of black women that were required to put black women to work in a field um you know right up until the moment of giving birth and right after um those perceptions of black women as animalistic as uh, overly strong as menacing as just not human persist in the ways that police officers interact with them to this day. So the last time we spoke, we talked about this recent study from the University of Washington in St. Louis that found that black women are the group 
that um, is the only group in this country for whom the majority of police shootings take place when they are unarmed. 60% of black women killed by police, according to this study, were unarmed at the time they were shot. So for police officers, the false perception of threat occurs most often with black women. So this notion of black women as menacing, as threatening, as superhuman, as overly strong and as likely to come for you and cut you or threaten you or harm you, even if they're just sitting in a car saying, could you please hurry up and write this ticket, presumably because she had to get back to teaching her school children in the afternoon and was just out for lunch, or, you know, Sandra Bland saying in a very calm tone of voice, do I have to put out my cigarette? I'm in my own car. That gets read, perceived, acted on. There's punishment of that as if that person was presenting a sort of monstrous threat because that's how society has taught us to perceive black women. Well, I mean, there's the there's the whole angry black woman that just the moment she raises her voice, she could go from raising her voice to doing God knows what. Exactly. And I think that's and also that literally police officers just punish black women for literally lifting their voice to ask a question um, because black women are perceived to have uh, no right to do so, no right to insist on being treated with dignity, no right to ask questions, no right to do anything but, you know, comply with this mammy stereotype. So Mm -hmm. I think, again, this is where if we look more closely where we're already looking, we'll see that the criminal legal system was constructed as much to control the bodies and behavior of black women as it was to control the bodies and behavior of black men. On that note, let's go back to Brian Stevenson for more perspective on how all this has shaped today's criminal justice system. We still live today in a country where if you are black or brown, you are going to be presumed dangerous and guilty in certain situations. And it doesn't matter how kind you are, it doesn't matter how hardworking you are, it doesn't matter how talented you are. These two young men in a Starbucks in Philadelphia get arrested by the police simply because they are black. They're being presumed dangerous. And I'm a lawyer, I'm a practicing lawyer for a long time. I go into court sometimes, I have my suit and tie on, I'll sit down at defense counsel's table, and I've had judges come out and say, hey, 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 you get back out there in the hallway, you wait until your lawyer gets here. I don't want any defendants sitting in my courtroom without their lawyer. And I have to apologize, I have to say, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself, my name is Brian Stevenson, I am the lawyer. And then the judge will laugh and the prosecutor will laugh and I'll make myself laugh because I don't want to disadvantage my clients. And the burden of this presumption, which manifests itself in our criminal justice system, where people are wrongly accused or wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced, is the reason why we can't talk about slavery, terrorism, segregation, without talking about mass incarceration, without talking about police violence, without talking about this contemporary presumption of dangerousness and guilt that continues to burden black and brown people. Part of the vision for me of this museum is I wanna create a country where 100 years from now, black and brown people are not presumed dangerous and guilty, where we acknowledge this history, where we recover from it, where we don't want to celebrate the mid 19th century by talking about how glorious and romantic it is by simply ignoring slavery, where we don't talk about how great our country has been uh, without acknowledging this hardship, this brutality. And I just think we're not going to get there until we create spaces like this museum. One of the things you've said is that um, one of the sort of evolutions is that lynching went underground. Yeah. Yeah. And so instead of the sort of public spectacle of putting black people to death for 
unbelievable things like the person we're looking to lynch isn't here so we're going to lynch you and your brother which is one of the things i saw at the memorial which we'll talk about in a minute quickly talk about how lynching went underground yeah well i mean you know it's after world war ii it's in the 1930s where the optic of america fighting for freedom in europe became really disingenuous and it was actually uh, nazi germany and the communists that began saying, well, how can you claim to be fighting for freedom and equality when you treat your black people this way? And these lynchings became just uh, irrefutable evidence uh, of a hypocritical America. And uh, the federal government began saying to these state governments, you know, we've got to do something about this lynching. It just looks bad. We're not saying it's, it's immoral, but it just kind of looks bad. So what can we do? And what the South begins to do is to promise the mob that they will have their death, they will have their battered body. We just have to do it indoors. And so lynching moves out from outdoors to indoors. We have these sham trials that last a few hours. And then we hang the person, then we execute the person. The death penalty is the stepchild of lynching. It's the same lethal violence. It's shrouded by the same kind of unreliability and racial bias. Uh, 87% of the people executed for the crime of rape between 1930 and 1972 were black people uh, convicted of raping white women. It's the same narrative. And it goes inside where it's no uh, more credible, no more just, no more fair, um, but it has the veneer of legality, of, of criminal justice. And that's the criminal justice system that we're still dealing with because at no point have we repented for that corrupt criminal justice system, that perversion of criminal justice, that racist criminal justice. We haven't repented. We haven't acknowledged. We've just actually magnified it. We go from 300,000 people in jails and prisons in 1972 to 2.3 million people in jails and prisons today. We've just expanded it. And that's why you cannot look at our country which has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, which is the most punitive society on the planet, which has now created an environment where 70 million Americans have criminal arrests and understand what we are doing and our silence about what we're doing without understanding this line from slavery uh, to terrorism to segregation. Despite this history, despite the here and now, we want to leave you with television anchor Tamron Hall who reminds us all that you don't have to apologize for being black. My family is unapologetically black and supportive of our community, but also unapologetically American and supportive of this country and what we represent. Look, my my dad, the only dad that I know, meaning I was raised by my stepfather, and we did not call each other step or half in our family. It was my dad. It's Clarence Newton Sr. And he was in the Army for nearly 30 years. And... I grew up hearing my father tell how even though there was segregation out in the world, as he referred to it, he's like, I'm in Vietnam and I'm there fighting alongside a white guy from Mississippi and we are fighting together. And he always felt that the military, with all of its flaws as well as it comes to race and gender, was always more inclusive, especially on the battlefield. And I grew up hearing that. Well, I think with black, it is the sense that if you are... Some believe if you're too pro your community, you're anti someone else's. And we will shrink, shrink away from those conversations, especially people, and I'll say like you and I, where we are trying to, in some ways, assimilate 
You know, we want to be at the table because of our talent, because of our hard work. We never want to be at the table because we are black. And so sometimes we shrink away from those things that make us special because of who we are as black people. So I think that being unapologetic about it is no longer being afraid to say, well, as a black woman, blah, 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 this is what I think. But being in the work world and trying to sometimes fit in and sometimes wanting to at least you you know you're not threatening, but you know to someone else, your speaking up can be seen as a right. threatening behavior or threatening uh, disposition or demeanor. I've been called angry black woman, not to my face, but through their actions. So when I say unapologetically black, it's to say I can be proud of my culture, but then that in no way diminishes what I think of someone else's culture. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hey, smart speaker owners. If you like K-pop with Jonathan Capehart, you should also try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a daily political analysis show from national political correspondent James Homan. The Daily 202's Big Idea is available as a flash briefing on Amazon Echo, Google Home, and Apple HomePod. To learn how to listen and to find out what else you can do on your smart speakers, visit WashingtonPost.com slash voice. The Washington 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 Post. Post.